The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Oh, hi everybody. I didn't see you come in. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast that we record. <laughs> As opposed to somebody else. Well, yes, actually. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic for The Wrap. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I write for Slash Film. Good. And, uh, I don't, have a, I don't have a nickname. That's that's, yeah. that's my intro. Except when you do. Anyway, uh, this week on Critically Acclaimed, we're reviewing a bunch of new movies. And uh, boy, as, are there a lot of them. As is our wand. Yeah, it's uh, it's the fall, and they're going to start jamming movies in, like, just wherever they fit, basically. So it's going to be uh, going to be kind of messy out here as we try to keep up. But here's what we're reviewing on this week's episode. Clerks 3. Pearl. Good night, Mommy. That's the remake of Goodnight Mommy. Indeed. See how they run. And confess, Fletch. The, they finally made it. Yeah, they finally uh, made they, another they've, Fletch. They've been trying to make get this Fletch film off the ground for like the better part of 20 years. Hell, uh, Kevin Smith was attached to it for a really long time. It was going to star yeah. uh, Jason Lee. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, there was uh, actually know the story if, if let's why don't we start with fletch because okay I know the story uh, I, you um, saw this one i didn't let's just right. jump into fletch all right fletch. i've actually never uh, seen any fletch i've oh, never okay. read a fletch okay. book okay i've never seen fletch i've seen a clip here and there online apparently chevy chase is in them and he says rather <laughs> laconic things that are intended to be funny yeah and um, that's all i got really uh yeah fletch is a care um I, I am Fletcher is the character's name. He goes by Fletch. And he's a uh, star of a bunch of novels by Gregory MacDonald uh, that were written in the 1970s. And there's like maybe nine or ten. I, I'd have to look it up. But there's, a, 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 whole, there's a whole series of Fletch books. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Fletch is, like you said, this sort of like laconic character. He... Uh, uh, he's is he a reporter. Or he's, he's, a, a he's an investigative reporter. Okay. Uh, so, a reporter, but also a detective. So he gets he into investigates like, crimes and things. And uh, his shtick, and this is something Chevy Chase really played up. He was in two Fletch movies, mm-hmm. Fletch and Fletch Lives, uh, back mm-hmm. in the mid and then late eighties. I was surprised uh, to learn that Fletch didn't live in the first Fletch. It was only in the second. Well, if it looks like he died in the first one, he comes back. Fletch lives. Uh, oh, I didn't, oh, okay. Spoilers. But the the shtick, Chevy Chase is a comedian, so he yeah. rolled with sort of the comedy, and Fletch goes into scenarios in disguise. He pretends to be somebody, so he gives like yeah. a lot of fake names, and that's what yeah. uh, Chevy Chase really did, like put on disguises and pretended to be other, all these other people. He played that up. Okay. Um, yeah, then uh, Kevin Smith was a big fan of the Fletch books. He liked the Fletch movie, and he tried to do another Fletch film with Jason Lee, and there was this huge kerfuffle where, uh, and this was back in the Miramax days, mm. and uh, <laughs> of all people, Harvey Weinstein uh, prevented Kevin Smith from making uh, Fletch the way he wanted to with Jason Lee. He said, you can't have Jason Lee, you have to have Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck's a bigger star. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, Kevin Smith said, no, I really want Jason Lee. Uh, and besides, if we ask Ben Affleck, he's committed to this other thing over at Disney. Yeah. And he can't leave that thing. And there was this big push and pull, uh, and uh, it looks like uh, Kevin Smith was finally going to do it with Disney. He was going to leave Miramax and go over to Disney, and they said, we can do it however you want. And Miramax said, no, no, you you got to come back over to us. We're the Miramax family. And, like, mm-hmm. Harvey Weinstein really, like, strong-armed Kevin Smith into saying, okay, we're a family. I'm yeah. going to be a team player. I'm going to do it for Miramax, and I'm going to do it with Ben Affleck. But they couldn't do it with Ben Affleck because he was still attached to that thing over at Disney. And so it never and happened. So, so it never happened. And, people uh, people like know, to think that behind the scenes stuff uh, in movies is uh, really interesting. Often it's, it's not. No, it's really not. It's, it's really just, just scheduling. Yeah, and uh, contracts. Do you want to know what that film was that Ben Affleck couldn't get out of, so that the Flesh film was never made? Was it something that didn't get made? It was something he didn't make. It was Ghosts of Girlfriends Past with Matthew McConaughey. Like he ended uh, up dropping out. Of, so if that's you, hilarious. If I love you, when that happens. If you hate that, that we never got a Kevin Smith Fletch movie, you can blame Ghosts of Girlfriends Past on that. <laughs> that's the way these things link up in Hollywood. It's really odd. It's so weird. Uh, but finally, after all this time, uh, Confess Fletch is finally out, and Jason Lee is not in the role. John Hamm is, and golly, John Hamm is great in this role. He's 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 not a character. It's interesting because John Hamm is best known for drama. He's best known for Mad Men uh-huh. and for other similar dramatic roles, but anytime he pops up in a comedy, he's hilarious. Mm-hmm. He's a genuinely funny actor. Yeah, he... and it's just weird to see him headlining a comedy, though. I don't, I can't remember him headlining a comedy before. Uh, uh, wasn't he in uh, Bridesmaids? Yeah, but he was like the eighth lead. But he, like, he had, had like he had a comedic role. But once he one. showed up, yeah, he was the person Kristen Wiig was like sleeping with at the beginning, and mm-hmm. then later on he comes back and she's kind of done with him because he's an asshole and she's better than that. He's oh, got okay. like two or three scenes oh, okay. at most. It was a get. It was still like, ooh, John Hamm. It was, mm. But it was kind of funny that it was John Hamm. Okay. But I don't recall John Hamm actually, like, I'm going to look at Mr. Like Mark headlining Mark. a comedy. I'm going to look at Mr. Mark because I really don't think he's headlined a comedy okay. before. But uh, maybe I'm wrong. Well, if, if you haven't seen John Hamm be funny, watch this movie because he is freaking hilarious in this movie. Mm. He has just the right kind of laid back attitude. The, the movie opens... He, uh, with him going into an apartment, and there's a dead body in the apartment. Good film noir kind of opening. Sure. Uh, a woman's been killed in the apartment. And uh, he is so uh, unaffected, so unfazed by the fact that there's a dead body in the apartment. He just calls the police. He's like, yeah, there's a dead body in my apartment. I'm going to mm. take off my shoes and make a drink and wait for you to show up. Mm. And, of course, the police can't are just completely uh, nonplussed by his lack of response. He takes off his shoes a lot and has a lot of lines of dialogue like, what, our hands get to be naked, but my feet have to be clothed? Uh, (laughs) I mean, uh, he's not wrong. This kicks off a a plot, which I I will be hard-pressed to describe because it is incredibly complicated. Uh, He Uh has, uh, Fletch, that is, has uh, a much younger Italian girlfriend whose father has been kidnapped and the kidnapper now is demanding a rare Picasso painting that her family has as payment. Okay. But this rare Picasso painting, it just so happens, was stolen by another rich guy played by Kyle MacLachlan who has it hidden out in a yacht somewhere. Okay. Um, Meanwhile, Fletch has hired a bunch of uh, a pair of street artists to paint up his van, which you don't know why he does that until the last scene in the movie. So it's a little bit mysterious when he does it. Hmm. 
And, uh, oh gosh, who else is in this movie? Um, oh, and there's also a, a really sort of outlandish neighbor who gives him a little bit of information. She's played by Annie Mumolo. Uh, okay. She's really funny. Um, Marsha Gay Harden shows up as this old Italian countess who uh, moves into Fletch's apartment, the one where the woman was killed. Uh, we try to find out like how she's connected to the rich guy who actually owns the apartment that Fletch is only renting. All of these things kind of link together in some way. Uh, if anyone is curious, uh, John uh, Hamm has never exclusively headlined a comedy before, like where he was the main character. Hmm. He's been in a couple of ensemble comedies, particularly Tag. Oh, that's right. He was in Tag. Yeah, yeah. with uh, Jeremy Renner and uh, Ed Helms. It's a bit, a bit of a puffball of a movie, but yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's harmless. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, and then he was on the... Um, he was in the Zach Galifianakis uh, spy comedy License to Kill. Wait, what? What yeah. is that? License to... Is it License to Kill? License no, to, no, not License, license to Kill. That's a James Bond movie. I was looking at... I was looking at the tagline on the poster, and I just... It's oh. called License to Kill... License to chill, mm. and it was called Keeping Up with the Joneses. David, oh, wait, what? Yeah, it started the one with David Duchovny. No, it starred oh, uh, Zach Galifianakis, Isla Fisher, Gal Gadot, oh, and right, uh, right, right, John right, Hamm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't see that one. Yeah, no one I, did. I know what film, which film you're talking about. No one did. That's, that's the one where they cast Isla Fisher as the dowdy one. Ah, yes. Like, she's supposed to be the plain character who's dazzled by the better looking Joneses, and mm-hmm. you know. It's like they're all good looking in that. You're, movie. you're all fabulous. <laughs> it's you're, like they're you're... all like dazzling movie stars. It's like what? No. no. Um, yes, I, I. He was in that movie. I but, didn't see that movie. No, but that's kind of the point, isn't it? These are not. No. He, what he's known for. Um, over overall, the plot is really difficult to follow and confess flesh. In, in a good and, way or in a bad way? Well, in, in a way where you know you're losing the thread. Like, a scene goes by and you're kind of amused, but then you don't know why somebody went somewhere, and it's a little bit... gets a little bit confusing by the okay. end. Uh, there's a scene where uh, he starts firing fireworks at a yacht, and he's, you know, breaking into the yacht, and you're like, mm. wait, why is... Why are we even that? doing this anymore? Yeah. Um, the whole... Even though uh, Fletch is an L.A. character and he's wearing his uh, Los Angeles Lakers cap, uh, uh-huh. the film takes place in Chicago. Uh, uh-huh. So it, there's a little bit of fish-out-of-water stuff, and the fact that he's in a Lakers cap is supposed to be comedic. He runs into Chicago John... Chicago Hills cop. He runs into uh, John Slattery, who is also on Mad Men. Oh. And the, because they work together so long on Mad Men, like, their chemistry is just perfect. Mm-hmm. And John Slattery hates Fletch, and Fletch is always, like, really kind of just flip in his presence, and their scenes together are gold. But John Hamm is, has this really rare quality where he's able to have good comedic timing with all of his co-stars. Mm-hmm. Like, if he's in any Momolo, he knows how to react to that scene, because she's, like, really this big, destructive well, I, kind of a character. I think so it's one of the things that John Hamm's good at in comedy mm-hmm. and drama in general is he's a great listener and reactor. Yeah, he's yeah. not trying to take the scene. He doesn't mm-hmm. need to. He's John Hamm. He's, <laughs> he's good. He's tall. He's handsome, and he's talented. He can, he can so, just uh, listen and respond, and just play off of whatever you give him, and he'll mm-hmm. come off smelling like a rose. It works yeah, well he, for him. He is really occupying this role really well. Like he's here for it, and I'm reminded of a type of comedy which is not really done anymore. Mm-hmm. But like your your Who's Harry Crumbs mm-hmm. or uh, your like Once Upon a Crimes. These sort of fun. Uh, caper comedies that used to be really common in like the early 90s and just sort of mm-hmm. and only then well the, uh, in the late 80s as well a lot of the late 80s so. movies but yeah this sort of um, these studio driven crime comedies yeah, yeah and we still get them once in a while but they tend to be like 
almost weirdly high concept. Mm. Like, what was that one with um, Ed Helms and Jennifer Anne? We're the Millers. Oh yeah, because that was go. the one where like the whole thing is they uh, they they're have all, to they're all like criminals, but they're pretending to be a well they're they're, a square they're, family. they're smuggling drugs across the board. None of them are career criminals. They're smuggling mm. a whole bunch of drugs across the border in a camper, and in order to do that, their cover story is that they're a family on vacation mm. and they have to live out the role for a while. Yeah, even though they're all they're not all like hardened criminals, but they're all shitty people. Yeah, yeah, just shitty human beings. The uh, that that film didn't really work because they didn't roll with the shittiness enough. No, like they, they, they there's tried, like a couple of scenes uh, where it gets like really dark, and mm. then it's funny. Yeah, but every time a, they try to have it be like kind of just like a light studio comedy, it's mm. like this is not what your movie is. There, there's a scene where uh, Will Poulter plays the the characters posing as the son. And yeah. they, they uh, it's revealed at some point that he he doesn't have a lot of sexual experience. Yeah. And both Emma Roberts, who's playing his sister, and Jennifer Aniston, who's playing his mom, are kind of like titillated by that. Yeah. And they take turns making out with him. Uh-huh. And and they're in like that. But there's someone to, else sees it. Somebody and and yeah. uh, and uh, uh, um, the dad is like filming. Oh, the not not Ed Helms. It's Jason Sudeikis in that. Jason Sudeikis is, yeah. is filming the entire. The, uh, Ed Helms yeah. is in it. He's like the guy who's hired them to do the drug smuggle. Yeah. 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 Uh, and like it's like you can tell they're going for this like sort of like twisted sexual thing, and it, yeah, it's, it's it kind of plays, but it doesn't. It's, really. it's pretty. It's, it feels like it's in a different film. Yeah, like there's like a maybe a John Waters kind of an edge to that scene. Yeah, but uh, Confess Flesh isn't. It it knows where it is. It's a little bit more sophisticated than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has that caper quality to it. It feels really kind of smart and. More than anything, it is just affable as fuck. Uh, you mm. are just enjoying John Hamm going through all of this and really selling the comedy. You could tell that they honed this thing down. Well, it's Greg it's Matola really... who directed it. And yeah. They're, they're a good director. And he's, yeah, uh, Greg Matola is a good director, but mm. uh, something that's bothering, and you and I have complained about this in the past, uh, mm. the sort of, the notion of the loose, semi-improvised comedy where a lot mm. of characters are allowed to, a lot of comedic actors are allowed to improvise a lot of lines that their characters have in a scene. Yeah. We give you the setup. Uh, you're allowed to riff and we'll pick whichever take is best. Yeah, you, or they're given like a scenario and they're allowed to just sort of converse a little bit. Yeah. And that makes for a kind of laid back atmosphere, but it also let scenes go on for a little bit too long. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything Things don't gets really a little feel bit, structured anymore. Yeah. yeah. It, and it, everything feels really kind of shaggy and that's the goal, but I miss a kind of really tightly scripted, well edited, you know, yeah. where, tightly put together comedy. Where it was funny before you acted it. Like you weren't trying yeah. to save the script with your riffing. Mm. It's actually just a good script you started with. This is a scripted comedy with strong comedic actors who are directed well and have good chemistry together. It's the film we've been waiting for. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Confess Fletch uh, was released in theaters the same time as on streaming. You can, you know, but it, it, it's only on VOD though. It's not like if you're like subscribed to Peacock or something. No, you get it no, for no. Free. It's, it's yeah, it's rent because like, at, at the premium price, so it's a little more expensive. You're not the first person. Person I've heard say this is a really good movie, mm-hmm. but every single person I've heard say it's a really good movie is also pissed that I've seen no advertising for this movie. No, they they this is this is not one that they're really pushing. Yeah, it's the, not in, uh, it's not in a ton of theaters. It's just kind of just barfed out there into the I, corner uh, of September. After the last like two two and a half years, mm-hmm. I think we just have to be a little bit more alert. Yeah. Uh, a lot of films are going to slide oh. by unnoticed. The advertising machine isn't geared toward these 
si- this size of movie. Well, and again, this is people often ask me mm. because it seems like kind of a moribund business. Why do we need film critics? And I would argue that there's a bunch of reasons why film critics are useful to not just the industry, but to society as a whole. Uh, and br- not just br- briefly to curate. To, but this is one of the yeah. big reasons, which is I, I, when I was a kid and I was watching Siskel and Ebert, uh-huh. I, you know, they would always open with like the biggest couple of movies that are in theaters that week or summer blockbusters. Mm-hmm. But then they would always make sure that there were smaller, independent, international films that they talked about as well. And quite often, that would be the first I heard of those movies. Yeah, yeah. So that's something that we are at least attempting to do. Hmm. And again, Fletch is a franchise film. It's not the most obscure thing in the world. But yeah, if you missed that there was a new Fletch out, now you know. And apparently it's good. It's a bit of an obscure. It's only the third of the, you know, since 1984. So it's not like a, a really prolific. And, you know, the first two Fletch movies were... Uh, you know, successful, but they weren't like knock them down, knock them dead blockbusters. And this is something I think we sometimes forget about when we uh, sort of resurrect mm. old franchises. Um, just because they were popular in their time doesn't mean that they've remained alive in anyone's consciousness. Maybe mm. the original fans of it are still out there, but are young people aware of Fletch? The way they, they might be with something like, mm. I don't know, like Transformers, where there have been tons of cartoons over the years, yeah. to keep it just sort of like this, ba- even if you didn't watch it, this baseline awareness, this is still technically contemporary for me. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is, yeah, in the 80s, we had two Fletch movies. I was there in the 80s and I didn't see them. <laughs> I saw I saw them out of order. I saw Fletch Lives in theaters, and then many years later I saw the original are, Fletch. Are they worth seeking out? Should I, should I um, make a point of it? I'll get I guess, to. I want to get to it eventually. My point is, do I need to make a point of it? Um, and would it help hmm. me to understand this movie at all? Uh, they wouldn't help you to understand this movie. Okay. This movie stands on its own. There's, this is a good are, introduction to Fletch. Yeah, these are uh, the Fletch. I imagine this is true of the books as well. They aren't like interconnected series. They're they're hmm. detective novels. True, they, they but I've read series of detective seri- novels sealed off singular mysteries. I've read series of detective novels before, and. Um, you know, sometimes it's like they will reference things that happened in the past or status quos have shifted or mm-hmm. there are characters with whom he's had a lot of adventures or she's had a lot of adventures. Yeah. And so well, like, it's re- not necessarily the ideal jumping off point, the 13th well, book in the series. Re- returning characters, though, usually if you go back to the first book, you probably already know those characters. Uh-huh. So technically you could start anywhere. Well, it depends on how it's written. But yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah, fair enough. Like, okay, yeah. so but but Fletch. Back to my question: Fletch and Fletch lives. Are they both good? Or? Uh, I think it's been. I haven't seen Fletch live since I was a kid, so okay. I, I couldn't can't really Stay recommend that in a, a, a with good conscience. The first Fletch is pretty good. Okay. Um, I I think Chevy Chase has you know his shtick, mm. but like the the plot of the first one is a rich guy uh, asks him to uh, to commit a murder. He mm. hires him as an assassin. Mm. Uh, and he hires him to assassinate him. He wants to be. Uh, he wants to be killed. He he wants to be killed, and so okay. he start. The the mystery is he starts looking into that. Why is this guy asking me to kill him? And yeah. uh, the way Fletch operates is he doesn't really give a solid answer. It's like I need you to hire me. Here's your money. Sure. Uh, okay. Well, I'll call you soon, and uh, <laughs> and then goes off on his investigation. Yeah. So, it, it, but he says it in like a, a really you know, flip sort Very of a way. Rhyme. Yeah. yeah, is this? Would you say? Oh, we'll finish it off here. Would you say confess Fletch is the better Fletch? 
Of the two, yes. Okay. Uh, I, I really enjoyed this one. Awesome. Glad to hear it. Um, well, you know what? Uh, normally we like to stagger these a bit more because they're movies I saw this week that you didn't and vice mm. versa. But we had another murder mystery this week. So why don't we just go right into oh, it? That's true. Because uh, I didn't see this one. I actually wanted to see this one. I happened to see the trailer for this one uh-huh. and I thought it looked cute. It certainly looked like something that was like made for a me demographic, someone who would like the movie Clue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a new uh, murder mystery comedy Yes. Uh, called See How They Run. It's got mm-hmm. a big ensemble cast. It's got Sam Rockwell. It's got uh, Saoirse Ronan. It's got, I think, David Yellow is in it. Uh, David Yellow is in I, it. I don't know who um, else is in it, but it looks like a pretty... You yeah, know. Sam Rockwell, Saoirse Ronan, uh, Adrian Brody, Ruth Wilson. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's... Pretty good cast. Pretty good cast. Um, okay, this has... I didn't know this at the time, but I saw this on Agatha Christie's birthday. Oh, weird. So, so this was like a really, really good coincidence right. because uh, this is a murder mystery set on the night of the 100th performance of The Mousetrap in London's West End. Oh, wow. If you know anything about The Mousetrap, it, it's a play written by Agatha Christie mm-hmm. uh, that has... Uh, broken many records as the longest running show of all time. Mm. It opened in the 1950s and it's been running ever since. I think it recently surpassed its 27,000th performance. You'd think people would know the ending by now. But you know, it's it's just one of those things that hangs in. It's an institution now. Yeah, it's like Rocky it's lo- Horror. It's long like, been an institution. So you yeah. go to London's West End, watch The Mousetrap. And okay. uh, uh this is takes place in the 1950s. A young Richard Attenborough is one of the characters. Oh, that's cute. Uh, as as is his real life wife, who is also in the Mousetrap. Okay. Uh, See, all of these me, is push, all of this is pushing my buttons. Yeah. All of this sounds fun. Let, let me uh, let me look up the the cast here. Um, okay. Uh, so I'll look it up. Per, and you, Pearl Pearl okay. Chanda plays Sheila Sem, who is Richard Attenborough's uh, wife, and okay. Richard Attenborough is played by an actor named Harris Dick, Dickinson. Okay. And he he's. Kind of doing like a little bit of a cute impersonation of, uh, of Richard Attenborough. Mm. Uh, Adrian Brody, uh, the victim, mm. uh, plays the American film producer uh-huh. who's going to adapt the mousetrap to film. And he drinks too much and he wants to turn it into a Hollywood picture. How dare he? And he's also the narrator. He narr- narrates from beyond the grave. Okay. Uh, this is something you might not know, but the mousetrap actually, um, Agatha, Agatha Christie. I think put a stipulation uh, with Hollywood that mm-hmm. they could make a movie of the mousetrap once the show closed. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want like the film giving away the ending to oh the play. Oh my god! Okay, that's it's fucking funny. It's been playing for like seventy years now. That's really <laughs> fucking funny. You know they uh, uh, that that that's backfired on Hollywood before. They had mm-hmm. that arrangement with Arsenic and Old Lace. Okay, where it was a it was a big Broadway hit. Uh-huh. Uh, it's this comedy about a guy who finds out his adorable uh, aunts are actually serial killers. Mm. Uh, and it was a huge Broadway hit. And so they said, okay, let's make a movie. And they said, great, you can put it out when the show closes. Mm. And they made the movie. It stars Cary Grant. It's mm. fucking funny. It's, it's really, really All-time funny, classic movie. It's still funny today. You got to see it. And they were just like, okay, great. And we'll just hold it until the show closes. Didn't come out for years. Yeah. Like, <laughs> years hold, later, hold they, it on a shelf, just, yeah. it's on a shelf, just waiting to come out. So uh, I like to think that they did make, like, several Mousetrap movies. And at, at mm. some point, the Mousetrap did close briefly because of COVID. Mm-hmm. But then it started up again. So uh, it's, Ah, see, that doesn't count. It, it didn't that really count. close. It just, like, had a bit of a hiatus. Apparently but, uh, there was a Soviet and Lithuanian adaptation of the Mousetrap in 1986. Featuring what? with some of the biggest movie stars in that particular country, made for television. 
four hours. A Lithuanian, a Soviet slash Lithuanian uh, TV movie based on the Mousetrap. It's two episodes. Wow. Came out in 1986. Something tells me they either had a separate arrangement with Agatha Christie, or that's I, I, quite unofficial. I, I'm guessing they had no arrangement with <laughs> Agatha Christie. <laughs> So if there uh, is a way to watch it, apparently, okay. if you can get that subtitle, I don't know if you can. It's just called The Mousetrap. Okay. Yeah. But there, there's the usual, um, David Oyelowo plays the playwright, hmm. uh, and... Agatha he, Christie? No, of, of The Mousetrap. He adapted. Oh, okay, stage. I was about to say. I yeah. was like, huh? Um, sorry, Agatha Christie didn't write the play. It was I, I was under the She wrote the original story, and then David Oyelowo. Uh, I see it now. Okay. okay. Uh, and... Uh, Adrian Brody is this American blowhard who's trying to change everything, and we get we slowly establish how he's been antagonistic to all of the key players that mm-hmm. will eventually be gathered in the accusing parlor. Yeah, uh, that's, that's how Agatha Christie and, would do it. Is basically and yeah. introduce someone who everyone would like dead for some reason, and, and he even says that uh, you know kill off the mo- the most unlikable character in the first act. That's classic Agatha Christie. It is. He's the most unlikable character. He's killed. His body's found on stage at the mousetrap. How cute! Delightful. Um, Sam Rockwell doing his best Timothy Spall impersonation. Oh, is it uh, a good Timothy Spall impersonation? It's too accurate. And I'll, Weird. Get, and I'll get to okay. that. Um, okay. And uh, he plays the detective and Saoirse Ronan plays like the young new like intern. She's just uh, just becoming a, a police officer. Hmm. Uh, they're the investigators. Uh, she is really nervous and she talks too much. He's really laconic and he barely speaks at all. And Sam Rockwell's really diving into this role to the point where he's lost uh, energy. And in fact, Sam Rockwell, rather unfortunately, is kind of a dead weight in this movie. Oh, that's such a bummer. Which is that's a bummer the opposite because, of what you think from Sam Rockwell. Yeah, he's Sam Rockwell is actually like kind of a, a little bit of a, an energetic. He's really that, good at playing scumbag that's characters. That's how we got Sam Rockwell. Yeah. Sam Rockwell worked his way up from very small roles mm. because there was no small role for Sam Rockwell. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Remember when, remember when uh, he was in the original Charlie's Angels? And like that's at right, first he's the he bad seemed, guy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, see, at first he seemed like just a generic supporting character. What? But then he's the bad guy. And as soon as he's the bad guy, he's like dancing and doing <laughs> splits. And all of a sudden, you're like, "Who is Sam Rockwell? And where? Yeah. And how much does he want to be to be a star now? Because well, he's great." I, I understand what they were going at with because. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saoirse Ronan is such a chatterbox mm-hmm. and he's supposed to be like kind of quiet and he's like secretly an alcoholic mm-hmm. uh, and I feel like he was trying to get into character too deeply and forgetting that he's in this like madcap comedy so yeah. when he and Saoirse Ronan are together the film just comes to a dead halt oh, it's really, really kind of slow all the energy drains no, out uh, no, no, where no. they're not like mounting all of these interesting oh. uh clues and then they get together with characters and I saw these like flashbacks and the screen splits off and people are talking really quickly and all of these characters are back and it gets a little bit of energy for a little mm-hmm. bit and then it just slows right back down again. That sucks because you know when you have two great actors in a movie mm-hmm. that have never to the best of my knowledge have ever been, a, been in a scene together before mm-hmm. that's what you, you want to see them together and you want to see them be good. Yeah you to, want to see some kind of banter you want to see yeah. some kind of chemistry you want to see I them just, play uh, off of each other complement each other in some kind of way. I just saw a movie and I'll review it when it comes out in theaters which I'm sure will be sooner than later because it was uh, it was for a film festival. Mm. Uh, but you can free, you can read my review on the wrap is of a movie called Wildflower, mm. and it's a big ensemble thing. It's based on a true story uh, about uh, a teenager who was raised by uh, two intellectually disabled uh, parents, okay. and it's about the they're all the families coming together. It's a sweet movie. It's fun, uh, but their mo- the mothers of her parents are played by Gene Smart and Jackie Weaver. Wow, and like that's. An awesome cast. <laughs> and you're kind of watching, and they have some scenes in like a big group, whatever, but they've never had like one scene together. And you're like, are they going to 
get off a scene together? <laughs> you're you're just gonna they finally like oh no no spoilers. Eventually they do, and it's mm. the best scene in the movie because yeah. <laughs> it's Gene Smart and Jackie Weaver going at it, and it's just what you want. Mm. And it's it's, it's like when uh, Michael Mann did Heat. He knew that this has to be like the most macho scene ever. Between yeah, like Pacino and De Niro, together, like we've yeah. been waiting for this. It's got to be a really good scene. Like you bring it, mm. so it's, it sounds like such a bummer that it's, like yeah, Rockwell uh, and Ronan, who would probably be really good together, you would imagine. Mm. No, yeah, there there needs to be uh, it needs to be just more classically almost cliched Agatha Christie. It would have <sighs> worked better if they just did the familiar. Uh, and I don't long for familiarity. I like when films do something different, but mm. if you do something different and it sucks, go back to the familiar. Uh, if you set me up for something familiar, mm. then I'll be okay with it. Uh, at the very least, the film has the wherewithal to have the accusing parlor where all of the, the mm. suspects are gathered together in Agatha Christie's house. Ooh. And Agatha Christie is a character in the movie. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> She's played by uh, uh, Shirley Henderson. Oh, uh, that's a, oh, that's a good casting. Yeah, yeah. I love Shirley Henderson. Mm. She was in uh, Train Spotting and the Harry Potter, which is great. Yeah. Uh, uh, she, she was really great in uh, Michael E.'s Topsy Turvy. Yes, she was yeah. amazing. Um, let me ask you this because uh, it sounds like it's like it, is it okay? It's just like the chemistry is off, or uh, is it is it it's, bad all it's the way su- through? Such a clever mystery and such an interesting, fun premise. All so these the mystery like, le- is levels good. of like meta narrative are just fun to play with. And, and I think the more you know about Ag- Agatha Christie, uh-huh. the more fun it is because there's a lot of like little references, not to specific books of hers, right. but to just the way her mysteries and her works have been received. Okay. Uh, all of that's fun. It's it's strangely the lead characters that take this thing weird. down. Uh, it's so fucking weird. It doesn't kill it, uh, but it, it I, I'm waiting for it to reach that madcap level of clue or something really bizarre like not i think knives out get, got really close to that as well yeah uh it doesn't have that kind of energy and you want it to and it's just really disappointing that it doesn't damn it it, it sounds like it sounds like i don't want to see it i want to read the script yeah i think it might 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 have looked a lot better on the page yeah bummer um, well uh i saw a horror movie which has some mysterious elements to it okay i, I saw the remake of good night mommy I've seen the original, but I didn't get to okay. see this remake. Then you've kind of seen the remake. They they do a few things differently, but it's basically the same film. Uh, Good Night, Mommy was an international film. I think it was Austrian? Yes, Austrian. I can say with utmost confidence. It's not like we paused the podcast to confirm, <laughs> to confirm where, that it was Austrian what, and what then put it in edit. this movie come from? Yeah, you, you'll never know. Well, but, but, <laughs> Why but, did we even cut that bit? But because... Uh, oh, God. Um... <laughs> Anyway, it's an Austrian horror film. It's an Austrian horror movie. And it's got a uh, really cool, creepy setup. Uh, yeah. Where uh, there's these two little kids, and they're... Ident- identical twins. They're right? identical twins. They are visiting their mother. Their mother is a... Uh, in the original, she's like a famous singer, but in the remake, she's a famous actress. She's played by Naomi Watts in the remake. Um, and they go to visit their mother. Their mother has like a house like out in, in a rural area, like a vacation house. And they're staying with her, but when they go inside... They find that their mother is wearing a weird, creepy mask. Almost unrecognizable. Almost unrecognizable, wearing a weird, creepy mask. And she tells the kids, it's okay, I'm wearing this mask because I recently had some cosmetic surgery done, but Mm. I'm not allowed to take it off. Also, I'm on medication that might change my personality a bit. 
And if you're familiar with horror movies, you're thinking to yourself, eh, red alert, eh, red alert, uh-oh. That's a bit of a red flag. Yeah, this isn't going to so be if, great. If you were somebody trying to usurp my mother's identity, how would this look different? Exactly. So the kids initially uh, are, you know, they're, they're willing to go with it for a minute, but the more they stay in the house, the more mom doesn't seem like mom anymore. She's mm. more aggressive. She has weird rules about not going into certain rooms. She starts being particularly uh, uh, verbally abusive to one of the kids. Uh, and yeah, it, it all it all yeah. builds up to this suspicion that like they there's, have. That, there's one kid who seems to take the brunt of abuse. Mm. And, and Yeah. And uh, so, uh, yeah. Which yeah is, and the other kid kind of like shrinks back. Yeah. it's it's So there's like this weird... It's a weird power dynamic, yeah, basically. Yeah, ba- um, misma- misbalance of power. Yeah, uh, and eventually they come to the conclusion that this is not their real mother, which means, and these are these are kids out in the middle of nowhere. They're they there's at least one scene in each version, though they change the way it works, where they attempt to speak to an outside authority figure and it doesn't go over well for them. Mm-hmm. They need to do something about this themselves, and what they do is scary. That is the basic premise of Goodnight Mommy. I've taken you through about half the movie. It's mm. not. I'm not going to reveal what happens in the second half. Um, there, there are some plot twists in the original. I can't speak yeah. if they were returned there, for the remake. Certain plot twists return in the remake. Definitely a lot of things have changed, but the basic thrust of the film is the same. If you've seen the original Goodnight Mommy, I'm going to let you off the hook. You don't need to see this one. Okay. It's not It's not sufficiently different that, like, oh, I gotta run out and see this new take. It's not like, um, for example, when Gore Verbinski remade The Ring. Uh-huh. That's a pretty faithful adaptation in a lot of regards. Also but with Naomi Watts. Also with, Naomi Watts has been in a lot of horror remakes. Well, she was also in Funny Games. She so, was in yeah. Funny Games. She was in The Shaft. I didn't see The Shaft. The Shaft <laughs> is a remake of, I think it's German. It's a, there's, a, there's a horror movie from Europe. About which I a, believe was called Der Schaft, but yeah, yeah, it's uh, uh, although I think when it was when it came out in America, it was like at least on like home video, it was called The Lift, oh, but right, in the yeah. remake, it was called The Shaft. Hmm. The Shaft is about a high tech elevator that kills people, hmm. and here's the deal. I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about the movie than the movie might want you to know hmm. because it's a selling point. It makes you want to see the movie. <laughs> It's not just like a haunted elevator. It is a cyborg haunted elevator. I will let you watch the film and find out what the fuck that means for yourself. But even the Naomi Watts version of that's pretty fucking great. You know, they say that shaft is one bad elevator. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so she's been doing even King Kong is arguably a, a horror remake. Oh, yeah. uh, so she's she's been doing this a lot, and I'll say this: uh, she is really good in the remake. Okay. She knows that her job, in the, especially in the first half of the movie, but really throughout, mm. is to play two characters simultaneously. She what? has to... There has to be an interpretation of these events where this is actually their mother and their children and they understand what's going on, and the interpretation that she's an interloper, maybe some, like, creepy stalker has taken their mother, maybe she's a monster, and I'll, I'll say this right now, the addition of CGI monster effects to the remake was not a good addition. Oh, no. It looks ridiculous. Oh, no. It's, it's, it doesn't it's like, help anything. This is a, a, a 
psychological drama. It's like a little pod boiler. It doesn't need monsters. Nah, it, I, I almost wish they'd gone the full nine and just made it a totally different plot. Yeah. Because like at that point, why not? But like, yeah, they 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 try to create a whole bunch of different other possibilities. And this, the, the CGI monster effects, never convincing. Largely because the, uh, 20 seconds after they show you a CGI monster, one kid always wakes up. Okay. So it's never like, it's it's just, I'm not ruining the movie. It's just unconvincing and you won't be convinced anyway. Um, so she's really, really good. She's playing two characters simultaneously. She's killing it. Uh, the kids are really, really talented. And I want to give them... Some real credit here, so let me make sure I look up their names because it's played by. It's not like one kid and they freaky Friday did it. It's actually two kids. Okay. They actually um, have identical twins. Identical twins, Cameron Crevetti and Nicholas Crevetti. Okay. Uh, they're really good together, as you can imagine. They have good chemistry together, uh, but they're actually enduring some like really harrowing emotional stuff. And I think Cameron Crevetti in particular, he plays a character named Elias. He's great. Okay. Like that's a child actor to keep an eye on. That's mm. a good actor right there. That kid can that kid could potentially be a big deal. Okay. So keep an eye on these two. They're really, really good. Um, it's not the actor's fault. The problem with the movie is it's a reasonably okay setup for the first half. Once the shit hits the fan and the movie mm. takes a turn, and I'm not gonna tell you what that turn is, because I at least want you to see the original, it's quite good. It pulls all of its punches. Oh, no. The original movie, without giving anything away, goes to some really dark places. And the remake wants to go up to those dark places and just sort of wave at the darkness, but not actually walk into it. Mm. In a way that's really, really frustrating. And I think even if you'd never seen the original, you would probably see this movie and go, there's a lot of creepy ideas here. And there's a lot of things that are, you know, potentially very frightening, but it feels like once the opportunity came for the movie to really go from like a seven to a 10, mm. it stayed at a seven and it mm. never goes further enough. It never goes far enough to really justify itself. It's like the filmmaker, a director named Matt Sobel was interested in Goodnight Mommy as a psychological film, but not as a horror movie. Okay. So it lacks, the first half is a lot of suspense, but once it actually hits horror territory, never connects. Hmm. Nothing about it is truly, I think, ter- frightening. I think you might get a little more mileage out of it if you've never seen the original, but you should just see the original, right. which is a much stronger and much more frightening film. I'm not even the biggest fan of the original. I just think it's quite good. It was all right. It's it, a good it, movie. Yeah. It's worth seeing. It's it like a yeah. minor stir in, the, yeah. in 2014 or whenever it came out. Yeah, it, it's a good horror movie. Like mm. it's, it's a, there's there are other similar things out there, and some people might be a little ahead of it, but it's a good horror movie with a creepy premise, and it, and it works. This is a again, it takes that creepy premise, gets some good performances out of it, but it never really lands. Mm. It's just. Yeah, it's it's weirdly I mean, muted. Not, not not that I you know expect huge changes for horror remakes. It's no. rare. It's rare that they uh, are notable unless they do something incredibly different. Well, I, I brought up The Ring as a good example of a, of a good horror remake, and I'm not the hugest fan of Gore Verbinski's. I happen to think the Japanese version is better, but I, I, I like Gore. I like the, the like the weird. Watching a Nine Inch Nails music video will kill yeah. you. Like I, I love that yeah, premise his, of it. Yeah. yeah, he he turned the video and because if you haven't seen The Ring, it's about um, a VHS tape 
with a bunch of creepy imagery on it. And if you watch it, you yeah. get a phone call, mm-hmm. and the phone call says you're going to die in, I think, seven days. Seven days, yeah. And then it's, you... it's just a whispered voice that says, seven days, and you die seven days later. Yeah, and then you mysteriously die seven days later, and that's the movie. And creepy premise, really weird. Gore Verbinski, when he remade it, did two things that I think were really smart. One is he made sure that the video in the, the tape mm. was like weird... College student art house shit. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Love that. He, he made the sure weird, that the weird college student art yeah. house shit is perfect. The video is way more memorable in the Gore Verbinski version. I'll give you that. And the other thing he did was he took a lot of the distinct cultural signifiers from the original film mm. and he adapted them so that they actually made sense in America. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, like instead of being, like, uh, is it the Pacific Northwest or is it Maine? Uh, they they some, move some, around a bit, actually. Some, some, some place like, very gray and wet in well, that movie. Like one of the big things in the original was that it was like a fishing village. Japan is an island, hmm. and whereas America is typically seen as more agrarian, so a lot of the fishing uh, imagery from the original hmm. in the remake was about horses, horses and, yeah. and you know more pastoral settings. That makes sense. Hmm. That's a good adaptation. There was a reason to change it. And it changes the vibe of the movie in some regards. Nicely yeah. done, everybody. Here, it just feels like all you really did was you made it less scary. Hmm. Why? <laughs> and it's not even PG-13. If you were going to make it PG-13, I would be like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. You, you were trying to make the, I don't know, the good son. Although I think even think that was R-rated. Like, you're trying to make, like, the slumber party version of this. Yeah. Or, like, family, horror-friendly, whatever like that. No, it's still rated R, so what the fuck? <laughs> What's the point? So it's a weirdly, frustratingly pointless movie. But again, the performances are really, really good. And I do think they deserve to be uh, uh, singled out. Mm. Uh, we also saw another horror movie. And let's talk about some movies that we actually saw together. Okay. <laughs> We're doing this entirely in the opposite order that we what, usually what do. Whatever. Just making note of it. Right. Uh, let's talk about the new horror movie, Pearl, which is a prequel... To a movie that came out this year. Yeah, in February. Um, a movie came out in February called simply X, letter yeah. X. Uh, sadly, nothing to do with the band. Uh, and that one was set in 1978, or was it late 70s? I think it was 78, uh, 78, 79. And a local film crew, an adult film crew, has been drummed out of uh, a town in Texas, the, the mm. big city. Yeah. So they have to shoot their film out in the country, and they go out to a remote por- uh, uh, farmhouse. Yeah, they rent to... like a, a cabin behind a farmhouse. Mm. And they're going to uh, illicitly, without telling the owners, mm. film a porno movie, like a yeah. 1970s porno movie. Like a, and because it's a farm, it's a farmer's daughter sort of porno movie. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the farm, of course, is run by creepy old people. Yeah. Uh, one of the stars, not not even the main character, but one of the stars in, in, uh, in the movie is Mia Goth. Yeah. She plays one and of they, the adult actresses. Well, yeah, she's yeah. one of the adult actresses. The, the story is actually more about... Uh, I think Brittany Snow is. She plays like mm. sort of the the star of the film within the film, mm. and she's like a lot more interesting a character, she's a lot more energetic. Mm-hmm. There's also a, a, really... like, a philosophy about the function of porn, well, which is really interesting. It's interesting because uh, I, I have this theory about mm. um, slash movies in particular, horror movies really in general, where uh, you, uh, the best slasher movies are the ones where if the killer never showed up, it'd mm. still be a good movie. Yeah, because yeah. the characters are interesting. They have their own lives. Their lives were interrupted by horror. Uh, and this is a great example of that because I would watch a movie just about these people filming a porno movie mm. and having ethical conversations about sex positivity and free love. 
And they have those conversations. They have smart conversations. And uh, Jenna Ortega is in it as uh, the boom mic operator, who, 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 who initially is is balking at it, but yeah, then is kind of, kind of intrigued a, by the yeah, liberation well, of it. Well, yeah, once she like sees it happening, as you yeah. understand, I feel like there's a really interesting conversation that they start to have an X mm-hmm. and it's interrupted by the slasher shit. Yeah. Uh, and the slasher shit is only okay. It's not like extraordinary slasher I stuff. Was, I, I missed uh, it when it came out. You reviewed it for the show. I, mm-hmm. I didn't. And then I finally caught up to it when I was going to see Pearl because Pearl is a prequel. It's mm-hmm. about the old, uh, the, the elderly woman who does most of the killing. Um, and I was watching it and I was like, I see why people like this. It's not great. Yeah. I, I, good ideas, good cast. The, curious, the killings are kind of underwhelming. Yeah, the... Uh, and there's a weird ageism to it. There's definitely weird ageism to it. Yeah. And I found, I found it really distracting that Pearl, the old woman, mm. yeah. is not played by an old woman. They got Mia Goth to mm-hmm. play that character. She's playing two roles in the movie. Mm-hmm. And they gave her like this really elaborate old age makeup. Yeah. Pretty I, convincing, I, so, honestly. Like, it's good makeup. It's, it's good makeup, but it looks like makeup. She, yeah, she doesn't look like an old woman. She looks like somebody in makeup. Yeah, and, I, was, uh, I, was willing, I was willing to... It was good enough, I was willing to accept it for the sake right. of the film. I suppose so. Uh, I read an interview with Ty West, mm. and he said that the reason he did that is he likes old age makeup. Like, he just wanted, <laughs> he just wanted to put somebody in makeup. He thought that would be fun. Uh, yeah. And the fact that Mia Goth plays, Chainsaw, plays yeah. both characters. And from that, from this dual role, uh, and, and this is something that wasn't really announced. You watch X, the credits roll, and then at the end of X, all of a sudden, there's a preview for something coming in a couple months. Yeah. It's a prequel. It's about the old woman as a young woman in, in 1918. Yeah. Uh, and so here we are. With and she's played Pearl, by Mia Goth And she's again. played by Mia Goth, uh, who is now playing her age. And Set in a, uh, on the same farm in 1918, mm-hmm. Mia Goth plays a young woman, young woman named Pearl, who is kept there by her German parents. Uh, who uh, mom is incredibly strict; mm-hmm. she doesn't want uh, Mia Goth getting out, and uh, oh. dad has been uh, ravaged by uh, by the plague, by mm-hmm. the pandemic. Yeah, uh, it was there, was there was a there was an influenza pandemic in, yeah. in the late 1910s. In, in 1918, the, the last time there was a pandemic uh, the size of COVID, it was in 1918. Yeah, uh, so it actually gave them an organic reason to have people wearing masks on set. I thought that was pretty clever. It was pretty clever, uh, and it also she, it also gives them a reason for people to feel isolated and paranoid of the outside. Yeah, which yeah, is you know which is spread, in the text anyway. Don't but here spread it's the bug. Extra. It's it's part yeah. of yeah. So it's it's all all very timely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Pearl is uh, passionate about leaving the farm. Yeah. She does not want to stay there. She resents her mother and father. Mm. Uh, she also is a little bit off. Uh, you know from the start, because because Mia Goth is good at playing slightly creepy characters. Mm-hmm. She and also little, extremely creepy characters. Yeah, uh, she, she was in like the remake of Suspiria. Um, yeah. She was in that really good version of Emma from last year. I still haven't seen that. Yeah. I hear it's good. But yeah, she's uh, she she's got this kind of um, Judy Garland somewhere. There's a place for me, and maybe I'll make it off of this farm and make, get into show business. That's what he dreams of doing. But if but if she was also Carrie, well, because like, there's uh... <laughs> there's a, one of the, like the first scene with her in the movie is her like you know she's in her overalls and she's on this farm and it's all very technicolor Douglas Sirk looking, which is interesting yeah. because that's more of a 1950s look than it is a 1910s look. But whatever. Well, um, it would have been nice if Ty West really had the I know, the, right? the moxie to make a silent movie. But, because because yeah. X actually does a decent job of approximating, at least in parts, mm. some 70s filmmaking. 
Um, here he's doing something else. And I'm actually, I like it, so I'm not complaining. Oh, it, um, it looks terrific. It's I love, great I love the photography movie. of it's this movie. It's really lovely widescreen photography. The color timing is gorgeous. Mm. Like it looks really, really good. So the opening scene is her talking to her animal friends, mm. all of the friends in the barn, and how I'm really gonna, I'm gonna make it out of here, and everything's gonna be great. And then, like, I think is it a duck or a, go- a goose? A yeah. goose walks in and says, "Oh, hi, Mr. Goose," and here's where the pitchfork comes in, <laughs> and it gets really. <laughs> Bad. She yeah. She spears the goose and feeds it to her pet gator who lives in the yeah. local uh, local river. And we've so we've gone from like the opening of the Wizard of Oz to like the middle of Toby Hooper's Eaten Alive, <laughs> and um, that's kind of where we're at in this movie. Uh, I here's a detail I really appreciate. She she likes to leave the farm, go into mm. town, and watch the pictures. Yeah. Uh, the way she talks about movies, she's talking about it like in is the 30s. I don't think there were like movie obsessives in quite the same way in 1918. I, no, there but, were because that's how like celebrity got invented was people were like sending I, I guess, fan I guess so. It, it, it feels a little anachronistic to me, but um, I mean, they're, they're playing it up like to, to relate to contemporary audiences, but I think it's more uh, or less fine. What I do deeply appreciate is that Ty West uh, has a projectionist character and he's like mm. the sexiest fucking thing you could ever hope to meet. <laughs> Projectionists are like tall, handsome rogues who just oh. drift through. He calls himself Bohemian. Yeah. He's got these old stag reels that he shows to mm. people after hours. The stag reel that he shows in this movie apparently mm. is actually the oldest pornographic film in existence. Oh, no kidding. It's okay. the actual I, one. I know. I've, I've actually... I'm telling on myself a little bit. I've seen plenty of silent era pornography. Sure. Uh, and You're a historian. <laughs> right. Historian. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm just sort of interested in film history, so I'm going to watch Smut Has Been Made All the While. So, yeah, you know, people, it's... ever since people invented cameras, they pointed them at people kissing and stuff, you know? Yeah, like, uh, it's what we're interested uh, in. We, we, we're interested in watching people have sex. As soon as we had yeah. a, a motion picture camera, we filmed that. Uh, yeah. It's it's an early part of film history. And, it, and of course, that thematically links it to the movie X. Uh, I think... The connections to Pearl make X more interesting really in do. retrospect. By itself, it's actually not great, but uh, Pearl is actually... Retroactively inc- helps X like, a lot. It re- retroactively helps because it itself is such a good movie. Yeah. I think Mia Goth is bringing this kind of... It, it's really great when you watch an actor invent a new kind of character that's going to be part of the pop consciousness. Yeah. And Pearl is is that. Yeah, she, she's, Pearl is is like a new kind of a movie monster, and it's thrilling to witness. When you watch X, and you and Pearl comes across like she again, it's pretty clear she's a, a very old woman, and she doesn't feel like an old woman. She still wants to be sexual, and she wants to be violent for some reason. They don't really go into a lot of detail about why that is in X, um, but you realize that there's a lot of repression that's being released here. Yes. And in Pearl, we see where a lot of that came from, from her mother, from a right. society. She's, uh, she's married to a guy who went off to world war one. So she doesn't have any release for mm-hmm. her raging libido. Uh, she is stifled. Mm. And even the simple fact, which is clear from the trailers, there's no spoilers here, uh, that, this young woman who desperately wanted all she wanted, all of the horrors that take place in Pearl, and they are frightening, and there's so much better gory deaths than there are in X. All of them, all of these things happen because she desperately wants to leave the farm. So when you see X and you realize she's still there, it adds so (laughs) much heft. 
Yeah. You um, see where all of that comes from and how it yeah, is the, all built. It's so much better. The original film, I think, Pearl's changed a little bit because that film's very much about sex and sexual repression. Yeah. Pearl is a little bit broader than that. It's about a lot more than just her libido. Yes, agreed. Uh, her libido is definitely part of it, Damn but right. it's also uh, you know freedom and art and mm-hmm. also a dark impulse that's always been kind of with her that her mom sees in her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, when when things snap and the blood does start to spill, uh, mm-hmm. it it starts to feel a little bit natural and it feels like it was a inevitable. twisted horror movie like, kind of way. Uh, uh, there's a there's a monologue Mia Goth has in this movie. single shot monologue. It's, uh, it's t- like it's like six minutes long. It's it's like great. One of two single shot horror movie monologues that have been in a movie in like the last month. <laughs> the first one was in Resurrection with Rebecca Hall. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And then the second one is in Pearl with Mia Goth. And it, both examples are some of the best acting you'll see all year. <laughs> like just literally some of the best yeah, acting. Yeah, me- Mia Goth, it went from, oh, she's interesting. We should keep an eye on them. Mm. In that scene, if you were not convinced that Mia Goth is a great actor before, you're going to see that scene and go, um,. Shit, Mia Goth for Best Actress? Are we, yeah, are we, can we maybe make that happen? Because there's a legit argument to be made that she, her performance in this horror movie is one some of the best work anyone's doing all year. Yeah, no, this is this is uh, without uh, any sort of qualification one of the best performances of the year. Uh, it's not going to get major awards attention. It's just not the kind of role that does. No, uh, horror movies have an uphill. But even even the classiest horror, Tony yeah. Collette couldn't get an Oscar nomination for, for Hereditary, Hereditary, and she should have won. <laughs> it's, I'm not even a hugest fan of that movie. She should have won. Yeah, this is another great performance and a really good horror movie. Uh, that it's just going to be like critics like us. We're going to talk about it, and it's not going to make it into the awards bodies. And you know what? Who cares? The I'm, awards bodies are kind of irrelevant. We, we know they're uh, fair. Uh, something I'm referring to, like the Academy Awards. No, and I pre- uh, and I appreciate that, and you're correct. Mm-hmm. But my my point is simply this: when we're going to spend because it's award season coming up, we're going to spend a lot of time talking. Yeah, about um, the nominees, who's going to get snubbed, mm. who's, you know, whatever. And okay, well, this is going to be one of those performances that whether or not anyone like gives it any credit in award season, years from now, this is a performance that will be remembered yeah, because uh, Pearl is that fucking good. And uh, Pearl plays the same trick that X did. Mm-hmm. At the end of the credits, they give you a teaser for another yeah. movie in this series. That trailer has already been online. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm in. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't like X, but I do love Pearl. So, yeah. uh, you know, even if they strike a balance, I'll be good. The yeah. third one's going to be called uh, Maxine with three X's. And it's uh, a which direct was the name follow-up of, to X. Yeah. yeah, which was the name of uh, Mia Goth's young character in X. Uh, but it's yeah. set... Fi- it like, looks like it's set in the 80s. Like, yeah, it's mid-80s. Uh, yeah. So it's like that character a little bit older in, in Hollywood. Yeah, uh, I'm totally down. Mm. Sounds really great. Uh, but yeah, Pearl, if you loved X, you're going to really love Pearl. Mm. If you didn't love X, you're going to really love Pearl. <laughs> because the things that I didn't care for... I liked X okay. Mm. The things that I didn't care for about X, Pearl re- responds to and amplifies. Mm. And it... it oh, So much about this movie fucking works. <laughs> the, the performances are great. Uh, he gets such some really glorious cinema out of it. It's a really pretty looking movie. The ending I have not has like stuck with me for a long time. Like I saw the, this movie weeks ago. Like, like the credits the, or the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, the last shot, like into the credits is like, 
Oh, that's fucking great. <laughs> you did you made a good movie, Petey. Like that this is a really, really good movie. So I highly recommend even if you're not into horror movies, I think this is just a really good one. Yeah. It's yeah. oh fuck. Such a relief. <laughs> I get like such a really good movie. Anyway, um the last movie we're reviewing on this week's show, and we know there's some big things that we missed this week. I'm gonna try to see The Woman King this week. Yeah, Maybe we can I, review I, it I next time. As well. I heard really good things. Uh, but so the last thing we're reviewing is the latest film from Kevin Smith. Uh, it is the latest film in the Clerks series. It is Clerks the, the, Three. The Askewniverse has been called. Uh, yeah. That is View Askew was the name of Kevin Smith's production company, yeah. and uh, they they share characters and events. Yeah. Uh, most of them uh, that not, he's not, made, not not necessarily with the exception of like the films that are directly sequel to each other, not necessarily in like a super complicated fashion, but kind the, of in yeah. like a all of John Hughes's movies are set in the fictional town of Shermer, Illinois, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and uh, Jay and Silent Bob, played by Jason Mewes and Kevin Smith, mm. are common characters. They appear in all yeah. of these. Sort of the Rosencrans and Gildenstern. Yeah, so they're in films universe. like Mallrats and Chasing yeah. Amy and. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Smith, when mm-hmm. he was a uh, young filmmaker, yep. uh, kind of cracked... He was one of the main players that cracked the indie world open in a lot of ways. Clerks yeah. came out in 1994. It was made for, like, $275,000. Like almost. Oh, and most of that was in post. Yeah. Like, so, the initial production was, like, you know, the size of, like, a mid... The cost of a mid-sized sedan. Yeah, it was, like, it was a super, super cheap movie. Yeah. And it was just about... Uh, essentially his own job at a convenience store and the friends he hung out with and the conversations they had. He was inspired very much by uh, Richard Linklater's Slacker, which was a very conversational kind of a movie. And he watched it as like, well, if if that's what a movie can be, I can make that. So he did. And and it was based on experiences that, you know, the the movie's very raunchy. It's a lot of a filmmaker just trying to, hey, notice me, I did something prurient. But a lot of the movie, a lot of the movie that really, really works is based on kind of universal experiences of the boredom of working retail Bo- and, uh, and the constant interjections from random strangers, most of whom you would never remember, but some of whom make your life infinitely worse yeah. just because they're there. Uh, it, it came out the nineties. The key's characters are very sarcastic. They're very sexually mm-hmm. flip. Uh, we did and a whole episode of... of our show, episode zero about clerks. And we talked mm-hmm. about the way that it had kind of an indelible impact on fan culture. Yeah, and the yeah. way that uh, the characters within the movie Clerks didn't just talk about movies, which was pretty novel in the '90s to begin with. Like people, it was usually considered pretty gauche for characters in movies to talk too much about other characters and other movies that they've seen. Yeah, uh, but between Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino, and then later Scream, the '90s kind of made that commonplace. But Kevin Smith's characters didn't just talk about popular culture. They kind of sought deeper meaning and allegories for their own lives within it. Mm. Uh, and I feel like that's where more than... It, 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 Clerks is one of those movies in the 90s where almost anyone could see that movie and go, oh, I also could make a movie. Yeah. You, if you just have a good story and like a lot of passion and the wherewithal, you can make a movie mm. and maybe it'll be good enough people will see it. But I feel like its lingering influence is the impact it had on the way people interact with popular culture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I agree. I, uh, that's what our conversation was about. Um, yeah. Kevin Smith uh, continued to explore things that interested him. Yeah. Uh, things like consumer culture was the basis of Mallrats. Both mm-hmm. Mallrats and Clerks takes place over the span of a single day. Yeah. And they're both very largely centered around 
a relationship that has gone awry and needs to heal by the end of the day, or at least confront in some sort of way. Yeah, set uh, against and, and, the backdrop of uh, some capitalistic enterprise. Some capitalistic yeah. enterprise, and also um, how that is reflected in a central fr- friendship between two young men. Yeah. Uh, They're very much of a piece. And the fact yeah. they take place almost over the same time. There, there's a scene in Clerks that takes place at a funeral. The character in question who died, whose funeral they attend in Clerks, yeah. is the character whose death is the inciting incident in Mallrats. Yeah. So, they're so, take, so those three movies take place in about the same week. Right. Yeah. Uh, even though they were, I guess they were made pretty close to each other. Pretty like, close. Just, probably yeah, just a couple a year years later. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Then he came out with Chasing Amy, which was his queer piece, and it was really revolutionary at the time. Uh, It it is um, a story about a queer woman written by a straight man. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's there's, a handful of issues with that, Uh, Mm -hmm. but at the time it was considered pretty revolutionary. Uh, Mm -hmm. The the queer voices, the sexual frankness, that was all novel. And uh, the fact that it is ultimately about how shitty the male character was... To the female character, I think earns it gives it a lot of points in its favor. Yeah, because it's, it is about the character learning about mm-hmm. what a shit heel he is. It's a mess in terms of like nowadays how we would look at its like representation, ideas representation. Yeah. But in context, it's a pretty interesting piece of filmmakers trying to figure it out and trying to do the right thing. So mm-hmm. um, it's an interesting film to watch. He followed that up with Dogma. Which is his most ambitious movie by far. What, what I appreciate about Dogma, I, I like Dogma. It has a big, bigger, yeah. uh, bigger named cast like Alan Rickman and Salma Hayek and Chris yeah. Rock, and you know, like big movie stars yeah. are in this huge one. ensemble. Yeah, uh, and it's and it's about God and religion. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Smith was raised Catholic and uh, kind of ca- in in his own words, sort of sort of casually Catholic. So he yeah. believed in a lot of the Catholic uh, guilt, essentially. Yeah. But uh, the actual he was, dogma was not necessarily his for him. Yeah. yeah. But what he got a lot of his life philosophy from was comic books. He yeah. like he liked sort of superhero dynamics and Star Wars and fantasy stuff. So dogma is essentially a view of Catholic dogma. Huh through like a superhero lens so the yeah, characters so like are all like heroes and villains. yeah he has a great character or monster really mm-hmm. in in dogma that the idea is um you know jesus christ was according to the bible crucified mm-hmm. on a on a hill called golgotha yeah and it's where a lot of people were crucified that's what they did on that hill mm-hmm. and like, when many many people are executed yeah. by that means and, yeah. and smith being crude uh, and bless him Never really apologized for it. He just says crude jokes. Yeah. Uh, That's his sense of humor. That's that's fine. When people die, they vacate their bowels. Hmm. And so his thing was, okay, so all of the human waste Hmm. collected on Golgotha, and now there's a a poop monster in the the Catholic Church. (laughs) It's a a canonical poop monster. Yeah. I like Dogma is another movie we were talking about earlier. I think it's a better script than it is a movie. Yeah. The script is full of really interesting ideas, uh, really kind of exciting, very modern takes. He really thought out his views on religion a lot. I think Mm. it mostly works. Um, As a movie, he's never been a particularly cinematic filmmaker, and I think maybe maybe another filmmaker could have brought more out of that, unfortunately, but... Would, it's still it's, it's still a really interesting film. Yeah, I, I really I'm really waiting for a much more interesting like visual stylist to direct a Kevin Smith script. Yeah. Uh, the problem is, uh, and we'll get to this because uh, yeah. he did he did Dogma, and I think yeah. uh, Dogma was like really 
uh, was protested by certain church groups. Oh, a yeah. Sight unseen. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. There was, was, I remember there were picket. There were yeah, because, uh, there were protesters in Pasadena, even. Yeah, like yeah. The, there were some church groups that were. These these were the same groups yeah. that uh, uh, also protested the last temptation of Christ. There were yeah. certain notions in it that certain religious groups objected to without even having seen the movie. And you know what? Uh, I, I in this case, yeah, it's it's yeah. not favorable to them. And. Uh, <laughs> And Kevin Smith, at first, you know, he's because he was still young and he's still sort of like feeling a little bit flip. Decided, hey, I'm going to do something funny. I'm going to protest with them. I'm going to protest my <laughs> own movie. And he wrote a big sign that said, "Dogma is dog shit." And he came out and he's like protested with the people. Yeah. And then like some news crews came by and he realized, oh shit, they're going to interview me about my own. what do I say? <laughs> I get it. And he like had to alter his sign because they couldn't have dog shit on the, yeah. the news cameras. So it just says, "Dogma is dog shit." And that didn't make any sense. <laughs> Just scratch it out and said poo. I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> uh, and however, during this experience, also during this uh, time, uh, Kevin Smith married and he had a child. Yeah. And uh, so he was you know, growing up a little bit. And some of these protesters got a little too zealous. And they started threatening his family. That's fucked up. Uh, sending them like death threats. And I stuff. remember that. That's fucked up. Yeah. And... Uh, like they, he, nobody like broke into his house. Thank nobody, God. nobody hurt anybody. Thank but, God. But that's obviously but, uh, way too far. But yeah. a lot of these sort of ex- and he, I think at that point he really started to uh, like sour on religion. And um, mm. he's actually on record. He said when when his dog died, he realized his dog didn't have religion, and he like mm. didn't really jibe with God anymore. Mm. Mm. But uh, eventually he made a film called Red State, which was mm. about his reaction to dogma. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, also a, a lot and, and about was, the Westboro and, Baptist Church. And it was about the Westboro Baptist Church, but yeah, the, yeah. it was kind of inspired by sort of these really threatening uh, ultra-religious Christian mm. sects. And that's a pretty effective movie. Okay, uh, re- that's the one Kevin Smith film I've never seen. Okay, there's, there's I've heard also, it's good, I just never uh, got around to it. Uh, so he did Red State, but this is also when he was kind of working out the last of what he had to say about Jay and Silent Bob. So he had sort of like the last hurrah of Jay and Silent Bob and Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which is just an unabashed comedy. It's, it's, a, it's a road trip movie. Uh, they go to Hollywood. They're making a movie about him yeah, and they want to stop it. Well, There's about, some really funny uh, stuff in that movie. There's also some really not terrible stuff that they really, really badly in that yeah, movie. I feel like yeah. that movie is about how Kevin Smith's movies were now being commercialized. So yeah. he's already doing self-reflexive movies about his own experience as a celebrity yeah. rather than as a young person who has something important he feels like he needs to say. And this is something that I think is interesting about Kevin Smith's later work because mm-hmm. a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it starts to take on because Kevin Smith has always been very public as a persona. He's better known to many people as a podcaster now. Yeah. He's just, he's, he gives long, like, symposiums. It's basically just him shooting the shit. Yeah, well, and you know? I uh, I was lucky enough to work in a movie theater where his films were shown at midnight, and yeah. he would he would come. He would do Q&As until five in the fucking morning. Dude likes to he talk. He just likes to talk. He's entertaining, but he likes to talk. And so mm. we, we know a lot about him. Mm. And we know that, like... You know, when he had a child, that's when he made the movie Jersey Girl, which is a very sweet movie, by the way. Mm. The movie got a lot of crap because it was, like, fun to, like, be mean to Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez when that movie came out. Right. But that's Uh, a good movie. I heard the director's cut's amazing. I've never seen it. It's it's sweet. It's really cliched. It's him doing, like, a John Hughes riff, but it's not a good... It's it's an okay John Hughes riff. I think it's fine. I, um, I like John, I like George Carlin in that movie. Yeah. He did uh, he did that he did his one like you know kind of Hollywood sellout movie. He did a movie called Cop Out, which is terrible. 
Yeah, that's, and that's it. that's when he that was him experimenting with can I make a movie yeah, within with, the with, with the, which is not my script. Yeah, that's the and, one he didn't write. And, and it turns uh, out no, no, he can't. <laughs> so he started to make uh, he made a, two movies which were about his uh, early experience as a filmmaker. Yeah, one was Zach and Mary make a porno, which yeah. was transposing his uh, experience as like a guerrilla filmmaker as an indie filmmaker into a porno context yeah so Seth Rogen and Elizabeth Elizabeth Banks Elizabeth Banks yeah Yeah, they're they're good friends they're roommates and their lives are going nowhere they're running out of money and they realize we can make a lot of money if we just make porn so let's make porn well and they agree at the earliest like okay you and I we we can just have sex on camera. Like yeah, we've never we had sex before. People, yeah. We don't. We're kind of attracted to. We could do it. And yeah. if our friends from high school heard, hey, do you want us to watch your old yeah. classmates have sex? Absolutely, you want to see yeah, that. So we know some. So, we know some people would buy this. So uh, that, yeah. that's their theory. And of course, over the course of making the film and having sex on camera, they fall in love. And you know what? Uh, that's a pretty sweet movie it's overall. A, it's a sweet movie, and yeah. it, it also is very entrepreneurial. It's about yeah. you know the. the, the the can-do spirit of the indie filmmaker. He's clearly riffing on making clerks. And honestly, it's pretty respectful of adult filmmakers as well. Absolutely. It, it yeah, treats no, it as a business, which is yeah. good. There's no judgment in it. It's, in fact, uh, it's pretty good. In fact, it's a little uh, little quaint. Uh, it, yeah. it, it's old-fashioned in a lot of ways. Yeah, the, the movie came out, and it's like, we're supposed to be shocked that porn exists. Like, dude, I've seen the internet. Uh, we, it's like, we, some people are watching porn on their phones right now yeah, as they dur- watch your movie. During your movie. Yeah. Uh, so that one yeah. that one felt a little bit like, oh, okay, I'm mm. just reflecting on it. And uh, in there, he also made Clerks 2. Uh, Clerks 2 is about, you know, Dante and Randall, the two main characters. Mm. They're played by a, a, a Brian Halloran, Brian Halloran and, and uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff uh, Jason, no. Um, Jeff Anderson. Jeff Anderson, yeah. Uh, the, the plot of the movie is they're they're now at a fast food restaurant. And, they're still uh, clerks yeah, they're still all these clerks years though. later, but now they're in a different place. Uh, Dante is going to marry uh, Jennifer Schwalbach, who is actually uh, Kevin Smith's wife. It's kind of weird that he's cast her as, like, heritage in his movies. Uh, but go figure. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to postulate on their relationship. Maybe she thinks it's funny. I don't know. But uh, the point is, at the end of that movie, after this big, and it, like Clerks, takes place over the course of this big eventful day, Dante's yeah. going to move out of New Jersey with his new fiance. Mm-hmm. but he's actually uh, had an affair with his manager at the mm-hmm. Burger Joint, he's played by Rosario Dawson, and he's actually in love with her instead, so he yeah. has to do... You know, he, has to, he has to come to terms yeah. with the fact that he's about to make a horrible mistake mm-hmm. and he needs to make a, a huge... Yeah, they have, uh, they have yeah. the, pop, the same pop culture conversations, They uh, mm-hmm. it ends with a donkey show, and uh, then the climax of the movie is, what do we do with our lives? We're in our 40s, and uh, yeah. the, the two characters have been arrested, they're having a conversation in prison, and they come to the conclusion that what they want to do is buy the convenience store where they used to work. Yeah, they want to do what they back. do, but they want to own it. They, they don't want to be yeah. someone's so, employees. And the last shot is them back in the convenience store. It goes to black and white. The song Frustrated Incorporated plays on the soundtrack. And this is Kevin Smith saying, I've always been comfortable with just going back and stagnating. Yeah. There's a there's an integrity to stagnation. I'm the guy who made clerks, damn yeah. it. I, that's I, what I, I do. And that's so that's what I'm yeah. going to do. I'm just that's all what I want to be remembered for. Mm-hmm. I have nothing new to say. Being the clerks guy is now my my stock. Yeah. So long ago, uh, Kevin I feel like Kevin Smith ran out of things to say. He's been riffing on Loosely. his fame. It's like when uh, you look at early Eminem records, for instance. Yeah, he's and that's talking about, about growing uh, up. He's talking about like, growing up and being impoverished and being involved yeah. with drugs and crime. And 
Uh, by, about, later, by about album three or four, he's only talking about how annoying it is to be famous. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you see that with uh, Taylor Swift as well. A lot of sure. rock stars, you know, they're, they're singing about their experience when their experience mm-hmm. is about being a pop star. And then it, that's it's a like little harder to connect to that. Yeah. It's a little harder to connect to that. They might yeah. still be good and might still have interesting things to say, but they're not necessarily talking to universal experiences. Exactly. And, and I, I, feel, I feel like that's what Kevin Smith has been doing. He's been riffing on his own status as a filmmaker for a long time. I feel like that's true to an extent. However, I also feel like, and I'm leaving Tusk out of this because Tusk is a practical joke of a movie. And Yoga Hosers as well, which is the follow-up. Yoga Um, Hosers is, is a movie that stars his daughter and her best friend, who is Johnny Depp's daughter. Right. Uh, And they play teenage clerks, uh, but they get involved in like a supernatural attempts to kill all the film critics, which is very cute. U- using miniature living sausage men who are played yeah. by Kevin Smith. And she say, and they save the day using yoga martial arts. Mm. Um, I like that movie more than most people. Yoga Hoser. Well, Yoga Hosers is clearly him just playing with his daughter. That's the deal. And this, like, he, uh, he and his daughter wanted to make a movie together and he did. He's just having fun. That's the, and that's what I think, with the exception of some TV, like occasionally he'll direct like episodes of like Supergirl or whatever. Yeah. When Kevin Smith makes movies now, it's abundantly clear he's not making them because he has, feels like he has something super duper crazy important to say mm. or that he's trying to like change the world. It feels like he's making movies to make art with his friends. Yeah. And he just releases them and we can like him or we don't. Mm. And on some level, that leads to these movies feeling especially shabby. Even <laughs> Clerks 3, which I think I liked more than you did. Mm. But Clerks 3, it's like his, I don't know, 12th whatever movie at this point. It feels less refined than Clerks 1 yeah, in some yeah, regards. Yeah. It really feels um, kind of thrown together oh, in some uh, regards. And the... Another, and we skipped over the one I haven't seen, uh, which oh. was Jane Silent Bob reboot. Oh, I haven't uh, seen that one either, actually. Right, so uh, fair enough. So, so I can't can't speak to that. I one. can't speak to that either. Um, so, which brings us to Clerks Three, which is him musing on not just where his characters ended up years later, but also how he himself decided because he felt stifled and bored to make a movie in the first place, mm-hmm. and also. Mortality, because Smith, as well known, had a brush with death a few years ago when he had a heart attack. It was, I think it was 2018. He had a pretty severe heart Very attack. Very severe Like, heart he attack. almost died. It, and, it, uh, it, was a, it was a situation that the doctors apparently called the Widowmaker, mm. because the odds of survival are very low in that particular instance. So, he's making a movie about all that. And he's making it because he can and wants to do it with his friends. Yeah. And as a result... This feels less cinematic than some of his <laughs> some of his his more famous even less popular movies and yet there's something I, someone made a point online they said that uh, you always know when Bibbs and Whitney are about to really destroy a movie because they spend a long time talking about the filmmaker's context, yeah. <laughs> context talking about the filmmaker's career the history of a franchise and I'm going I'm going to tell you something right now mm. uh, I can't speak for Whitney I like this movie okay and I think the context is important to this because I think Clerks 3 is a reasonably decent follow-up to Clerks 1 and 2, which I think are more accomplished movies in some regards. Mm. And I like Clerks 2. I, I, like I want to say that. I, I like it too. I, I told, talked to... Uh, it's a film about stagnating and you know, mm. the integrity of stagnating, but mm. I, I do like the movie, and I like that was his statement. I think that should have been his last movie. You, That's kind of like... Like, I put a button on everything. You, you can make that argument, and yeah. I'm not going to fight you on it. And this, but not, this not that I dislike like, some no, of the no, things no, no, he's no. done after, but like no, no. that was his, his 
big statement. This feels like, you know, Clerks is what he comes to when he feels like he's reached a point in his life and mm. wants to and wants to meditate on it a little bit. And here he's this is a movie about mortality. Mm. This is a movie in which Dante and Randall, all these years later, they're still running that convenience store. And at the beginning of the movie, uh, Randall has a heart attack. And it, it's very similar to Kevin Smith's experience, mm. based on the stories he's told. He almost dies. And he realizes that his life flashed before his eyes and it made for a shitty movie. Yeah, so he's I mean, like, why don't I do something with my life? I'm going to make a movie. And the movie that he makes, it's ironic because this is actually the story of the beginning of Kevin Smith's life when he made Clerks. Or beginning yeah. of his, his adult life, anyway, when he made Clerks. But here it's something that happens at the end of their lives to these characters. Mm. They're going to make a movie, and the movie that they make is basically Clerks. No, it's literally well, Clerks. It is. Initially, it seems like we're just going to be like a fake Clerks, uh-huh. but gradually the movie clarifies that no, the movie that they end up creating, and whoever their makeup artist was, is amazing because whenever these people are on camera, they look 30 years younger. <laughs> wow, it almost looks like an indie film from 1994. I know. Uh, but uh, but yeah, they're, they're making Clerks, and they're making it. And, but it's actually kind of interesting because. Kevin Smith made Clerks as a young person sort of ranting about mm. their own it's, life and yeah, their existential his frustrations foibles. as a youth, yeah. Yeah. And he's making the argument here that Clerks is still a statement that, about his life, but if you reframe it as someone older looking back at Clerks mm. as a, you know, their as a story of their youth, he's he's restructuring and recontextualizing his own yeah. movie. And I think it and I think, you know, it's maybe a little inexpert at that. But I think the attempt is actually kind of interesting mm. and kind of sweet. And ultimately, that's the vibe I got from this movie is Kevin Smith stared death in the face. It scared him. But what he got out of it was an appreciation for the people around him. And this is not an ode to clerks, per se. This is an ode to making clerks mm. with people he knew and cared about and had frustrations with and how those experiences were what ultimately mattered the most. Making the movie uh-huh. was more important to him than the movie. Uh, well, and I that's, think that's an interesting approach. I, I, I While I can appreciate that from a, the creator's perspective, mm-hmm. if he made it for him... I'm not getting a lot out of this. Okay. You can have that argument. Uh, and I do not like this movie. Okay. I, I feel like uh, Kevin Smith became far too content at one point. Mm. And he's, he's too happy, Dan. He's it. too happy. And so he has he has, <laughs> he has nothing to complain about anymore. Yeah. He's he's comfortable. He, you know, he got to make a movie with his daughter just cause, just for fun. Yeah. Yeah, he made it for like fifty dollars, but you know. yeah, yeah. I interviewed him for Yoga Hosers. He talked about that. It was yeah. like I don't care what the critic said. I made a movie with my kid. That was what I wanted to do. Okay, you um, know. Well, I'm a critic, and I'm going to say what I say. So, I, and fair uh, enough. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Uh, what? Uh, so what I'm seeing here in Clerks Three is you know Kevin Smith is staring mortality in the face, and all he can think to say is shitty jokes he thought up thirty years ago. He's just repeating <laughs> jokes. Uh, the most frustrating thing about Clerks 3 is that it's not funny. That's uh, the thing. It's 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 the least funny Clerks by Yeah, I agree the, with you. The, most the, of the jokes are not great. These characters are all 50, and they're not having the kinds of conversations a 50-year-old might have about popular culture. They're trying to approximate. It, no, it feels like wrong. a Kevin Smith knockoff film rather than... <laughs> 
the the uh, the, the two funniest jokes in this movie uh, is a weird offhanded reference to All About Eve from a character you're pretty sure has never even heard of it. <laughs> that's a yeah, funny yeah. bit. But the my favorite joke mm. is um, there's a bit where I think Dante and Randall are arguing outside the convenience store. And Jay and Silent Bob have bought the video store next door, and that's now a weed store. It's a dispensary, yeah. And there's, it's, it's a funny concept. It's not really funny uh, execution. Uh, there's a, a cute scene, yeah, yeah at, at the where beginning. When people buy weed from them, they give them the full 90s experience of it being illegal. Yeah, so they're, <laughs> like, they're, like, like, slide it over to them. Yeah, it's like they're they're outside of the store, and they pull out of their coat, and it's like, and, <laughs> and they, like, these people, like, they just want to get weed. It's legal. Like, yeah. They just buy it, and... and yeah. So it's like, and he slips it into his hand. It's like, oh God, hide it, hide it. It's like, and they're confused. And then Jay, Jason Mewes, says, yeah. "That's how we did it in the '90s, son." Yeah, uh, but the bit that I like is uh, when they're the Dante and Randall are arguing outside the convenience store in the middle of the night, and Jay, who again has barely changed as a person, he's still a complete stoner. He just happens to own a store. He just walks out and says, "Will you two shut up? It's nighttime." <laughs> And just Jay caring that it's nighttime is the funniest fucking thing to me. I, uh, if you look up Jason Muse, he's had a, a, a bit of a hard life. Yeah, he struggled with addiction and uh, came out on the other side. Yep. Um, he's actually Kevin Smith has brought him on speaking tour, so I've also heard uh, yeah. Jason Muse speak. And uh, his answer, he had a lot of like really funny stock answers, like uh, what what were, what were you doing during this time? It's like shooting dope. Yeah. If I was an addict, so that, that's all you do when you're an addict. Yeah. It's like, how'd you get out of it? Porno. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, I just watched a lot of porn that got me over this, like, when I had a, had the urge to watch some porn, and that's just like, really? Yep, porno. Well. That's a very Kevin Smith answer. That's a very <laughs> Kevin Smith answer, indeed. But you know what? Whatever got him through. And he's hey, hum- right. And, and, you know, he's, he's upright now, and I, I appreciate him. that. And yeah. he's well enough to star in Clerks 3. Yeah. Um. He's been clean for quite a while now, yeah, yeah, but um, so I like I liked seeing him. He was he was actually he was bringing more energy than I think anybody else. Mostly, yeah. um, there's some side characters that Kevin Smith thinks are far more amusing than I do. There's this uh, one. Uh, there's this one guy who was in Clerks Two who was this kind of like dweeby ultra like religious this, type. And yeah, it's like an ultra Christian, and he turned he, into like an ultra, ultra, still ultra religious, but now he's a Satanist. There, there's a few kind of funny bits that come out of that in the second half, but the whole character doesn't really feel like they add no, a lot to the uh, story. Yeah. And and every single jokey and there's like some fun cameos throughout. Yeah, uh, I feel you. But yeah, there there are no jokes that land. He's just repeating a lot of the old jokes from Clerks, mm-hmm. and you realize that he's he's making Clerks three. He's never been able to really flee that. Like for a while, yeah. it looked like he was growing and trying to say more interesting things. And I feel like once he got on the speaking tour, he realized mm-hmm. no, he's not a filmmaker. He's actually more of a podcaster. Yeah, that's he been does his this wheelhouse. as a side project. And yeah, yeah, and now that filmmaking is sort of a side hustle, you can see that he's not putting a lot of thought into it. This is and the, the films are emerging as shabby yeah. and unfunny. And the point of them is one element of these big sort of things that he's not really bothering to assemble in any kind of meaningful way. I feel like, you know when, like, Seth Rogen goes on, like, Twitter or Instagram, whatever he does, mm-hmm. and, like... Because Seth Rogen, in addition to being an actor and a producer, he uh, he actually, like, owns a weed business. Like, he actually grows his own weed and he sells his weed. Yeah, I know, I know he's selling just, like, pipes, and now I think... Well, that's the... He's, a... But he'll also, like, say, oh, and by the way, mm-hmm. I, like, I made a bong, or I made a tray that's specifically designed... To be good for rolling weed, and it's the sort of thing where it's just like you can tell that's like just this thing he does, mm. and he thinks it's neat, and it's like yeah, that's cool, man, and I kind of like you kind of appreciate it. Kevin Smith does that, but it's an hour and a half, 
And uh, you know what? I think, but I th- and I think your mileage is going to vary on this. Mm-hmm. I think your affection or connection to Smith's work mm-hmm. is really going to impact how seriously you take Clerks Three. Mm-hmm. Because I think if you take Clerks seriously as a shabby but I think sincere mm-hmm. meditation on his own life flashing before his eyes, basically, mm-hmm. um, I think there's actually some sweet stuff in this movie. And I'm not going to lie, I got a little misty eyed at the end. Um, the, uh, the Dante character. Yeah. I think he does well. He just, he has, he goes through some hard stuff actually. Mm. And I think Brian O'Halloran, who I think has repeatedly like never, not really been like super into acting. Like I think he's, well, he's, he's been in Kevin Smith movies mostly, yeah. but yeah. 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 Um, I could be wrong about that, but that's what I heard. Uh, he, he gets a really, if this is his send off, it's a nice send off. Yeah. Uh, and I think that part is really very tender and nice. Mm. Um, I think ultimately, I think it's hard to deny that this is a sweet, well-intentioned movie. Whether it is a good one, we can differ. I agree that it is shabby, and I agree. And this is the greatest detriment of the film. It's not particularly funny. Yeah. But it isn't ever anything less than amiable. It's never like a hard watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think ultimately, like if you've been following these characters in Kevin Smith's career and life long enough, there's enough to connect to here where this is kind of like a sweet shabby piece of autobiographical mm-hmm. allegory and i was able to get into it and i did like it okay i i this is a harsh word but it did strike me as a little bit pathetic that uh kevin smith mm. is coming back is trying to make something about mortality and his own life and and he's got nothing new to say that he's looked mortality in the eye and even that hasn't given him any kind of material to work with i don't know he's, man he's, just try- like he's, he's talking about he's his... looking back on his own life and the only thing he can think to say is something he's already said in a movie it's on record and he also already made a movie about how great it was an experience to make that movie zach and mary make a porno was already that film granted granted i agree with all of that stuff mm. and i think that there's a lot of this movie where they bring back the original actors who were in clerks many many yeah, all years of the later. supporting characters yeah. Mo- yeah. well most i don't think sadly i don't think all of them are still with us but a lot yeah. of them are, are back and replacing like their the, roles. Uh, and like the, the the weightlifting guy who like tells the Dante the, like the guy know. who's obsessed with finding the right egg like yeah that might get that guy a back. lot yeah. of them come back that's great um and then that's that's fun it's good for it's fun for the fans and I'm sure it was it, it was a delightful experience for Kevin Smith but I feel like yeah I feel like we talk a lot about movies and art that feels really personal to people mm. oh isn't that great it feels like it feels really personal it feels really intimate it feels like they really had something to say. And yet, it, I, I guess what you're arguing is that it is possible to be so personal it's not for anyone else. Yeah. yeah and, I think th- and I think that's an okay critique. I just, I don't know. I kind of thought it was interesting to be a party to that. Uh, and you know what? Kevin Smith, uh, like, Clerks came out when I was in high school. And mm-hmm. so Cl- Clerk, uh, Kevin Smith has been an incredibly important voice to me and a lot of people my age and a lot of people of my generation. Kevin Smith would bristle at the notion that he's the voice of a generation, but he kind of is. He's one of them, uh, yeah. And yeah, this sort of, not just the way he rewrote pop culture conversations, but the way he sort of cracked open indie filmmaking for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. The way uh, that he changed the way we talk about retail. Yeah. You know, like it just, it, it is. And, it was something his, that was not considered interesting enough to put in camera most of the time. He also started to have a lot of very frank conversations about sex and popular culture, sex mm-hmm. especially. Uh, you know, the, these kind of like crass conversations became mm-hmm. a little bit more of the norm. And uh, 
So he is sort of an important figure to my youth, mm-hmm. and I'm happy to see him grow, but now that I've seen him grow into a content adult, mm-hmm. it's it's been frustrating watching him stagnate. And mm-hmm. when he said in Clerks 2, that's what I want to do. I want to stagnate. I want to stay here in Clerksville and be known mm-hmm. as the Clerks guy. Uh, that was a good statement. I feel like that was a good button on what he, like I said, it was a good button yeah. on what he... Uh, You're just not interested in him actually about. doing it. Well, no, because that's what he's doing. That's exactly it's exactly what you said you like. Oh, good, he's going to stay in Clarksville and just do whatever. Like, not 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 he's going to do whatever. He's going to going to. He says, "I'm going to stay here. Bye, farewell. This is where I'm going to stay. You move on." Like he was letting us go in that movie, but now he's coming back and doing shit like Tusk. And Tusk is insufferable. I, I, I hate and, Tusk. I, I and, think Tusk and, is a very bad And Yoga, movie, yeah. Yoga Hosers, yeah, he made it for $50. I think it's fun because it's kind of dumb and just yeah. playful. Uh, I didn't see Jay and Silent Bob reboot, but that's like, yeah, he's just sort of not not there for us anymore. He's there for himself. Here, here, here's the and thing. That, yeah. that's, that can be frustrating as an audience member. There's a moment in this movie that I feel... <clears throat> because again, I like this movie. I genuinely like this movie. Is it Kevin Smith's best film? No. Hmm. But I think he's. I think it's. If you have any affection for what he's doing and what he's done, <coughs> excuse me, need some water. Um, I think there's some real emotional heft to it. But I think the point that you bring up is is very valid. Is that while Kevin Smith may have grown as a person, hmm. and honestly, I would kill for the contentment that Kevin Smith seems to have in his real life. Oh yeah, good for him. Seriously, we we would all and, love and- that. That's amazing. Write a book. Tell me how that. Tell me how to achieve that, please. But as a filmmaker, he lost a lot of his ambition. And I've seen some of his episodes of TV, but that, that's a whole, you know, that's a whole support network keeping a, a particular look and standard yeah, and visual it, effects quality alive. And yeah, it's, that's it's, that's its own thing. It's curious that he can have a thirty-year-long career and not develop visually at yeah, all. Yeah, not really, no. Like, and again, some of his movies look better than others, but... It's all it's dependent really on his, budget, really. It's yeah. never really been his thing, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, a, there's a line in this movie where uh, they're talking about filming inside the convenience store, and this movie's in color. Clerks was in black and white. And the, de- the cinematographer he gets says, hey, I'm going to film this in black and white because it looks fucking awful in here. Like, you ever <laughs> been inside a convenience store? Uh-huh. It's this ghastly garish lighting yeah bad commercial terrible colors, colors yeah. everywhere nothing feels designed and so we're gonna says we'll film it in black and white it'll give everything a nice uniform aesthetic and we'll kind of give it a kind of a grungy uh this is on the security camera footage kind of aesthetic and i'm watching this and i'm like yeah clerks one was a more accomplished film visually than this which is really <laughs> really weird but the thing that cemented it there was a there's a bit in Tusk uh, where the movie ends, and then over the credits you hear a clip from the podcast where oh, they where conceived he... the idea of Tusk, mm. and they asked their audience listeners if they would like to see a movie about it. Please vote on like Twitter, and there was like mm. hashtag Tusk yes, Wal- 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 yes, Walrus no. Okay, he kind of does that here, except instead of he, talking, he addresses to, the audience. He addresses the audience directly. And he says it's like he came out at the end of the movie mm. and said, "Hey, everyone, thanks for watching the movie." And then he does something, and I don't know if this is kind of laid-back genius or just lazy as hell. And he talks about the... I'm not going to tell you what it is. He talks about the last scene in the movie, and he says, you know what? I had a different thing at the end of the movie. Hmm. I was going to put this at the end of the movie instead, and then I found this bit of music, and I thought it worked better with the music, but I still want you to know what I was going to do. And a part of me is just like, are we allowed to do that? You can't even, you, didn't even, you couldn't even 
make there's... like one last choice. Like yeah, a part of me is like I'm I'm impressed. Or, or do something he's so... stylish where he could have it both ways. Like he's... there's he could do that. But what is he just he did the most laid back hmm. thing imaginable to just sort of walk out of making like this big creative decision at the end. <laughs> And a part of me admires him for getting away with that shit. And a part of me is mad at him for trying. Right. <laughs> and I think that's Kevin Smith just there in a nutshell. He's yeah. just, he doesn't give a shit. And I... I want of, him to. I know that's, you do. That's a my of, issue. But a part of me is interested in what happens when people don't feel that urge to to appease other people. Yeah. This is what they'll do. And that's kind of interesting. At least from the outside, I think that's interesting in a meta contextual way. Yeah. So I think it's... Interesting. Do I think it's great? No, but I liked it, and I thought it was like it made me think a little bit about Smith's life and career and the characters in the story. And you know, I've mentioned this before. I'm very phobic of death. Mm. Death scares the shit out of me. I'm very scared of it. And a movie that attempted to confront death and come to the conclusion that when all is said and done, all that really matters is the experiences we had with other people. Mm. It's, 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 it's not an unri- it's not an, an original sentiment, but it's earned here, I think, and I, I thought it was sweet. Right. So, um, we disagree. So be it. Uh, let's review films on the critically acclaimed scale. Once again, the critically acclaimed scale goes from C minus to C plus. A C plus is above average. That's a movie we genuinely recommend. Maybe it's great. Maybe it's just good, but we genuinely recommend it. A C is average. Some good, some bad. More for one audience than another. Meh. And C- minus is below average. We don't recommend this movie or we think it's quite terrible anywhere in between. Mm-hmm. On that note, Clerks 3, Whitney. Uh, it's a C-. Minus. Oh. I, I, I can't recommend it. It's just way too shabby. Okay. Even if you're a Kevin Kevin Smith fan, you're not going to find anything fun or new here. It's, he's just mm-hmm. repeating a lot of old jokes. I'm giving it a very low C+. Because oh, wow. as, okay. a, because as I, I guess I'm a different Kevin Smith fan than you and that I, I approach the work a little differently. Um, I th- I found some real emotional catharsis out of this. I agree it's not very funny. Okay. And I think that's, that hurts the film and it keeps it from being like a high C+. But as someone who's been following along, I actually thought this was a very sweet send-off. All right. uh, so it worked for me. Uh, what do we got here? Uh, uh, Pearl. 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 Uh, C+. I, I really, really liked Pearl. And I, I was surprised because I didn't like X that much. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Pearl, I think it's a good, solid character piece. Mm. I think it's a good horror movie. I think Mia Goth gives an excellent performance. Uh, I love the aesthetic of it. It's just a, a really, really wonderful film. Yeah, I agree. I think Pearl is definitely a C+. Excellent movie on its own merits. And whether you liked X or not, it makes X better. Yeah. Which yeah. is the best kind of sequel or prequel. <laughs> like actually, it, it improves it enriches the, the material. Yeah. That's awesome. Good for you. That's hard to pull off, and I think Pearl does it beautifully. Great fucking movie. Uh, Good Night, Mommy is sadly a C minus. The original uh, is a C plus, but the remake is just the original, but seventy percent less scary, which is not a place you want to be. That's yeah. a bad way to do a horror remake. But credit where credit is due. Good central performances. The psychological stuff works. Mm. It's the plot and the scares that fall apart. Ah, that's too bad. Uh, let's see here. See how they run. See how they run. I'm going to give it a C. Okay. Uh, I, f- I feel like it, it doesn't have that manic energy that you want. It's actually pretty relaxed to the point of losing you from time to time. But mm. I think the premise is so interesting. Mm. And uh, the the Agatha Christie twistiness is so much fun that it, it you can't discount it entirely. The Agatha Quistiness. Quistiness. Quis- quisp and Quake. Nice. And uh, lastly, confess, Flatch. 
Uh, also C plus. I really nice. like to confess Fletch. It's it's this one is just really solidly funny. Yeah. Just funny all the way through. I think all of the characters really play off of each other really well. It's it's difficult to follow. The plot <laughs> is the worst part of it, but uh, I yeah. think that's part that's part and parcel with the kind of mystery they're telling. And John Hamm is is great in this role. If if we got like three or four or five or six more of these John Hamm Fletch movies and they're mm-hmm. this quality, yeah. I would not be displeased. All right. Well, that is it for Critically Acclaimed. Pretty good week for movies overall. Pretty good. And yeah. we didn't even see The Woman King, and I heard good things yeah, about that I, from critics I trust. I do plan to see that. Hopefully we can review it next week. Next week we'll also be back with reviews of uh, the film Don't Worry Darling, which I, is I, a which is a, which is is a a film Olivia Wilde made uh, that uh, there's no buzz whatsoever. No one's, no one's talking about it. Uh, and uh, there's a David Bowie documentary called Moon Age Daydream, which I'm hoping to fit in as well. There's other stuff that's coming out. It's... We're entering into the Oscar season. They're going to start cramming in movies yeah, every which way. We'll see as much as we can. Um, so, yeah. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you want to listen to our show without ads, we get it. Uh, you can do that over at our Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, you get all the new episodes without ads. You also get a bunch of exclusive shows. Uh, even at the $1 tier, you get our show about the vast world of the Step Up franchise. Bigger than you might think. Uh, that is a weekly show about Step Up. We have uh, our Oscars show, Only the Best. We review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. We have a weekly Star Trek series called All Our Yesterdays, where we review every single episode of Star Trek in order. We do hangouts with our various patrons. We do trivia nights with our patrons. There's a ton of stuff over there. Huge shout out to all of our patrons, without whom this show could not exist. It would not be even remotely possible. So thank you to everybody for helping the show. If you can afford to, we appreciate it. If you want soap, we know you want soap. Do I? You know you were like listening to this entire podcast, like get to the soap. Well, we sell soap. Or at least I and my partner, I'm Lapis De Silva, do. We have another Patreon. It's called patreon.com slash saltcatsoap, where it's a soap of the month club. We design handcrafted soaps and we deliver them. It's either one a month or two a month to our U.S. Uh, uh, patrons. Sadly, we don't do international right now. Uh, and uh, yeah, we're doing some really cool glow-in-the-dark Halloween soaps mm. for October. And if you sign up before October 1st, you will be able to get those. So thank you, everybody, who signed up for that. Check it out if you like soap. And I hope you do, because soap makes us clean. And uh, yeah, and also, if you want to talk about anything we discussed on this episode, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us an actual physical letter. We like that sort of thing. Send it to P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And, of course, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?